The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everyone. So glad that you could join us. We're going to be talking about a topic that we have covered in the past, but it's been a while. We're going to be talking about the environmental impact of human population. And as many of us know, according to the UN, sometime around Halloween last year, our human population on the planet hit about 7 billion people, and that number is only expected to grow. And uh, we're going to be talking about what that means to the environment, what it means to human society. And we're joined today by uh, Philip Cafaro. He is a professor of philosophy at Colorado State University. He's one of many contributors to a brand new book called Life on the Brink, Environmentalists Confront Overpopulation. And it's a compilation of a variety of essays from many different vantage points, many different contributors from different fields of, of study and different backgrounds contributed to the book. And we're going to be going through some of the issues that they raise. I think they're, they're really quite interesting. Uh, well, welcome to the show, Philip. We're so glad to have you on Go Green Radio. Thanks for having me, Jill. Great to be with you. Well, let's start by having you explain to our listeners uh, a little bit about the book, Life on the Brink, what it aims to accomplish. And I'd also like to ask you, you know, a lot of authors hope that everybody in the world will read their book. But in your <laughs> mind, <laughs> um, at least initially, who do you expect your target audience for the book to be in? And what do you hope they'll do uh, you know, in response after they read the book? Sure. Uh, well, Life on the Brink is uh, a book that collects writings from um, people in a number of different disciplines looking at population and overpopulation issues around the world. Uh, we have about 26 contributors in the book, and um, they're anthropologists, they're physicists, they're philosophers, they're environmental studies people. I guess what they all share is, is a concern with population issues, and they tend to share what I'd call a biocentric view. In other words, they're concerned with uh, sustaining resources for people, but they're also concerned with with um, leaving enough habitat and resources for other species on the planet. So um, who's the book aimed at? Really, um, we, we work very hard to, to keep out academic jargon, and we, we tried to create a book that your average concerned environmentalist and especially active environmentalist would be interested in reading. So that's, I would say that's our core, um, the core reader we're reaching out to is a committed environmentalist, someone who's serious about preserving nature uh, and who's interested in population issues. Mm-hmm. And once these folks read the book, get inspired, what is your hope in terms of their next action, you know, what what do you hope they'll do once they read the book? Well, um, we're hoping that they'll 
think about the issues. We're hoping that they'll talk to their friends and fellow activists about population matters. And then we're hoping that they bring um, population activism into their own work. So if they're working on preserving, uh, keeping water in the Colorado River, if they're working on stopping sprawl, uh, if they're working on preserving agricultural lands or protecting endangered species, uh, whatever it might be, we want them to make the connections to population issues, and then we want them to, um, to get their groups working on population issues themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great goal. I mean, I know that we're going to be getting into some of the specific uh, public policy recommendations that the book uh, puts forth, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, uh, but I think that the book is well crafted to accomplish exactly that mission. It, talk to us about. You know, I know that there are many, many different environmental threats that human overpopulation can exacerbate. Things that we already know are going on, pollution and what have you, but. If you had to name your top three environmental concerns or environmental threats that are truly exacerbated by human overpopulation, what would those be? Well, uh, probably number one on the list would be global climate change. Um, According to the IPCC, the International uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, population growth is one of the two main drivers of climate change. And climate change, in turn, threatens so many things from our ability to feed ourselves to other species' ability to continue to exist. So climate change would be number one. Uh, Number two, I would say, would be uh, mass species extinction. The biologists tell us that we've entered into an era uh, of the sixth mass extinction of life on Earth, the first in 65 million years. Uh, That's just a huge threat, uh, obviously, to other species, but also to to us. And then I guess for number three, there's a little bit of a sleeper that, that scientists have been talking about a lot, but you don't really hear much in, in um, the news about it, and that's uh, increased nitrogen deposition in the oceans. Uh, this is something that people have only started exploring really in the last decade or so, and yet uh, it, it has the, the potential to play havoc with uh, food chains throughout the ocean, and that has huge implications. Now, when you talk about nitrogen deposition, do you mean uh, agricultural runoff uh, that that's causing dead zones? Is that what you're referring to, or is it something else? Well, that's a big part of it. Uh, we're we're uh, we use a tremendous amount of nitrogen-based fertilizer to feed seven billion people, and mm-hmm. of course uh, that. Uh, that causes all kinds of problems, these dead zones at the mouths of many of the world's major rivers. Some of them are, are huge. Uh, but there's also, uh, it turns out we deposit nitrogen when, when we drive our cars. Many of the, the activities that human beings engage in uh, have, have led to excessive nitrogen deposition. And this, uh, this has sort of snuck up on us, but uh, the scientists are very worried. For instance, could, could this... Um, could this make it harder for uh, organisms in the ocean that, that uh, create shells? Could it make it harder for them to do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you interfere with that, you could look at just disasters. Mm-hmm. You know, for the average American, it is probably not completely clear how human population 
necessarily dictates mass extinction. You know, a lot of people think, well, if we just quit doing things like cutting down rainforests in the Amazon or Mm -hmm. if we behave, you know, better in terms of buying electric vehicles or whatever, that, you know, we're not causing mass extinction. Help us make that connection. What what does the science show as that correlation between human population or in, in the case of the way that the book lines it out, human overpopulation and mass extinction? I don't think that's necessarily clear to all of our listeners. Sure. Well, if, if you look at several studies that have been done uh, in the last 10 years, on the causes of extinction. Uh, they come back and overwhelmingly say the most important cause of extinction is habitat loss. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there are other issues out there. There's invasive species, there's uh, loss of water. Uh, many things can, can help lead to uh, a species being extinguished from an area or globally. But overwhelmingly, the most important thing implicated in over four-fifths of all extinctions is habitat loss. So then you have to ask, well, where does habitat loss come from? And again, overwhelmingly, habitat loss is driven by human economic demands. So, for instance, um, the, the expansion of agricultural lands is implicated in many extinctions in the United States and around the world. Well, why are we expanding agricultural lands? It's primarily because we need to feed people. Uh, or again, uh, taking water out of rivers around the world has, has extinguished many species. Mm-hmm. Well, why are we doing that? It turns out that, that people need water. They need it to drink. They need it to grow their food. They need it to uh, make Create golf energy. <laughs> they need energy. Uh, yep. So, uh, you know, you can look. If you want, you can sort of leave population aside and just focus on all of the activities that people do. But really, when you look at those activities that people do, the reason why they're so overwhelming is in large part because there are ever more of us. Well, you know, and that's that's one side of the coin. I often look at the other side of the coin, and I've read articles just within the past few months that talk about, you know, statistics like Americans waste 40% of the food that they purchase, you know. That that in and of itself, changing that behavior, not wasting that food, could decrease the amount of agricultural land we have to, you know, clear or what have you. You know, things like that. I mean, we do have an obesity problem in the U.S. If right, you know, if right. we could curb those things again, some of this is the behavior of the population, and maybe not just the numbers themselves. Oh, you're you're absolutely right about that, and. Um you know, it, it is true that you can look at various things, whether it's how we uh, raise food, how we eat food, how we use energy, and you can mm-hmm. find various uh, efficiency moves that you could make to, um, to decrease our impact. But mm-hmm. the key question for me is, what do you want to use those efficiency moves? What are you going to use those, those savings once you've done that? What mm-hmm. we've tended to do, in, in this country at least, with our efficiency improvements is to use them to facilitate more growth, more consumption, and more population mm-hmm. growth. So, mm-hmm. you know, to give you a good example from the book, uh, Tim Palmer has a piece in the book. Uh, he's a river advocate in California, and he points out that uh, environmentalists have pushed for greater efficiency in the use of water in agriculture and among municipalities in California, so that today, compared to 1970, Californians actually use about half as much water per capita mm-hmm. as they did 50 years ago. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, right? You'd think we've got more water to, to leave in the rivers. We can, we can preserve fish. And, and, well, it turns out that's not true because mm-hmm. in that same time, California has doubled its population. Right. So we've taken those efficiency gains and we've used them to further more growth. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good point. Now, you know, a consumption aside, you know, and that's when a lot of times we talk about the environmental impact of human population. A lot of people focus on the developed countries and, and the kind of consumption patterns that, that those populations have and the environmental degradation that that causes. But the book makes the point that it's not just you know, population in developed countries, but in some of the underdeveloped countries, maybe south of the equator, um, there are environmental impacts even to populations where, uh, you know, they're not driving cars. You know, they don't have three cars in every every driveway. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the environmental impact of uh, population growth in some of the less affluent countries. Right, and and that's important because... 95% of global population growth is coming in the developing world. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is important. Uh, in developing countries, of course, people tend to be poorer than, than in the developed world, and their per capita use of energy or water or other resources tends to be much lower. Uh, nevertheless, uh, that per capita use of energy and water and other resources doesn't go down to zero. So the first point to make is just whenever you add more people, you're going to be adding some more degree of, of resource use. Mm-hmm. But the other point to make is in much of the developing world, they're working very hard to increase wealth and increase people's opportunities. So whether you're talking about China or Brazil or parts of southern Africa, we're seeing relatively uh, fast economic growth. And along with that, we're seeing increased resource use. So uh, sometimes people will say, well, look, this population growth is in the developing world. It's not as big an issue as it would be if it was in other countries. But those countries don't want to stay poor. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. again, you know, if we want to have the room for people in other parts of the world to get wealthier, uh, we've got to end population growth. Well, and I think another important aspect, and I, I think the book um, touches on it as well, is that it, it, it isn't even just that these countries begin to act like Westerners and start consuming. Sometimes they will sell their resources or you know, allow other countries to come in and pay them for their lumber, their agricultural products and what have you, and and they increase their economic growth in that way. So it's not even just so much that the population there starts consuming its own resources, but even in order to increase their their GDP, they will allow other countries to come in and and uh, and use those resources as well. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll be talking about some uh, public policy issues, some moral issues. We're even going to get moral on you here at Go Green Radio, so I'm excited to talk with Philip about that. So don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today our guest is Philip Gaffaro. He is a professor of philosophy at Colorado State University, and he's one of the contributors to a brand new book that's called Life on the Brink, Environmentalists Confront Overpopulation. Now the next question I'm going to ask you, Philip, is kind of like trying to squeeze a watermelon into a Coke bottle. It's a big, big question, so take your time with it. What do you think the global community should be doing about population growth? I mean, how can... We humanely and, um, you know, in a, in a, in a civil way, reduce population or reverse population trends without causing human suffering, without diminishing freedom. You know, what, what do you think the global community should be doing? Well, uh, the good news is there's an awful lot the global community can do which will increase human freedom and at the same time help us deal with population growth. It turns out, and and we've seen this throughout the world in many parts of the world, it turns out when you give women and you give couples the opportunity to choose how many children they're going to have, they typically have fewer children. So the most important thing the global community can do and individual nations can do is uh, make it possible for couples and and women to choose how many children to have and this involves uh in some cases it involves changing uh social and cultural mores about the purpose of women and the purpose of families uh mm-hmm. in many cases it simply means providing uh 
accessible contraception to people who are too poor to, to pay for it. So mm-hmm. providing free or inexpensive contraception can, can make a huge difference. Uh, the most recent figure uh, is that 215 million women around the world uh, who want to use contraception uh, do not have that available to them. So mm-hmm. the most important thing is to make that available. Well, give us some examples of some countries that have implemented successful population, you know, measures and and what they're doing, lessons learned, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, sure. One of the most important uh, examples for Americans is Mexico. Uh, if you go back 30 years ago, Mexican women, on average, uh, were averaging about five children uh, per woman which is, you know, much, much higher than replacement rate and was leading to huge population growth. Uh, and starting about 25, 30 years ago, the Mexican government decided that was not sustainable, and they made a great effort to provide contraception and, uh, and to, to um, make that uh, acceptable, to, to make the case that contraception was, was uh, a good thing. And... Uh, that's been very successful over the past two and a half decades, so much so that today the fertility rate in Mexico is uh, less than two and a half children per woman. woman. So uh, mm-hmm. that's a great success story. Uh, a success story that, that really surprises a lot of people is Iran. Um, if you go back uh, to the early 1980s, right after the Iranian Revolution, Iran had one of the highest fertility rates in the world, uh, over six children per uh, per woman. And again, the leaders of that country took a look at that and, and saw a disaster down the road. And so they put together a uh, program not just to provide contraception free of charge, but um, they actually, um, throughout uh, mosques in the country, they preached the value of uh, people uh, consciously choosing to, to have fewer children. Uh, when we think of Iran, we don't typically think of this kind of thing. We think mm-hmm. of conservative clerics who would never accept something like that. But uh, for whatever reason, it, it was acceptable. And so uh, the Iranian fertility rate today is actually down around two ch- children uh, per, per woman. Uh, unfortunately, in the last year or so, President Ahmadinejad has uh, reversed that. Mm-hmm. and decided that, that that's not the way to go. So we'll have to see how that, that situation develops. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to think that part of the equation in all of this is the um, the improvement of health care. I know it's certainly not perfect in a lot of countries, but the infant mortality rate around the world has also gone down quite a bit and that was a big driver in a lot of cultures for having so many children is that you know not all of their offspring would make it so a lot of couples would procreate you know pretty prolifically so so that they would actually end up with you know two or three children and that is not as much of a concern as it used to be I think and that that may have contributed to the lower birth rate do you think that that has contributed somewhat Oh yeah, that's been very important, uh, mm-hmm. and, and you're absolutely right. Simply in order to replace the population, uh, back a uh, hundred years and more ago, uh, people had to have four and five children, mm-hmm. because uh, on average, uh, one out of every two children would die before the age of five. Mm-hmm. So, um, with the improvement in health care and improvement in sanitation too, 
Uh, that's made a huge difference. And, and of course, those were great accomplishments. But in, in the wake of that, population just exploded because for a while people were having just as many children as before. Mm-hmm. So really, uh, what we need to do now is to realize that, that times have changed. We don't need to have that many children. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that's changed a lot, I, I find, in, in talking to people, I was in India a few years ago, talking to people uh, about how many children they had, and, and quite often they were only having one or two, at most three. And in, in that case, what seemed to be driving people's uh, thinking about it was, in order for their children to get ahead, they were going to have to provide them with uh, really good educational opportunities. Mm-hmm. Well, these are poor people I'm talking about now, so they could scrimp and save and do that for one or two children, but not for six or eight children. And so Mm -hmm. that seemed to be making a difference to the people I was talking to. You know, one of the contributors to the book that I have had on Go Green Radio before and that I have enjoyed actually some other uh, folks from his organization, the Population Media Center, uh, I've had Bill Ryerson on, and in his contribution to the book, he brings up a point that he's also mentioned on Go Green Radio previously, and it's not just that uh, women lack access necessarily to contraceptives. In some areas, there are just a lot of other cultural issues beyond those that we've already spoken about. And so his organization does some really unique things to address those cultural issues. And I'd like for you to talk about his work and his contribution to the book, Life on the Brink. Uh, the Population Media Center is really um, a very creative organization, and I enjoy their perspective on this issue. So if you wouldn't mind, talk to us about Bill Ryerson's perspective and, uh, and his thoughts on going beyond just providing contraception in, in helping countries to um, address population issues. Sure. Uh, Bill uh, runs an organization called the Population Media Center, and they do great work around the country. Uh, they've, they've done work in, uh, in India. Uh, they, they are active in a number of countries in Africa. Uh, putting on TV shows and especially radio shows, uh, sort of soap operas, which have a um, uh, an affirmative message about improving rights for women and about uh, an affirmative message about choosing to have smaller families. And so uh, we sort of have two two pieces that work together nicely in the book. The first is by Bob Engelman, who's the current head of the uh, World Watch Institute, and he argues that basically. If we could give every woman in the world the opportunity to have as many kids as they wanted, that in itself would take care of population growth. (laughs) Now, Bill Ryerson's piece, which follows Bob Engelman's, argues, well, that's a big part of it, but it's not enough. Because in many countries, particularly in Africa, uh, there are cultural norms in favor of big families. Mm -hmm. And Bill argues that we have to not coerce people, but, uh, you know, convince people to uh that having smaller families can can be a good idea. Mm-hmm. So there's an interesting debate in the book among those two writers and others about what's really necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh but B- Bill's work is is very interesting. He he goes out and they're working to try to model this idea that smaller families can lead to greater prosperity. Well, and and I've had Virginia Carter, who is one of the advisors on their board, um, on Go Green Radio, and I I love her. She worked um, in 
television for many decades, has won many awards, and one of the things that she was so instrumental in doing here in the U.S., back in the 70s and the 80s, she helped to create some sitcoms that created these inspirational, funny, uh, very accessible characters that modeled certain social behaviors that that we wanted to to introduce mm-hmm. and and that's how these soap operas in the various countries work they have um characters male and female who are not preachy they're not um you know controversial necessarily they're very likable mm-hmm. they're very fun they're very interesting and and it gets the listeners or the viewers, depending on the medium, thinking about their, how those characters' experiences relate to their own lives. And, and as you said, in some cultures, you know, you know, women may, uh, deal with the, the pain of childbirth and the, you know, the difficulties of raising many children. But at the same time, in their cultures, a woman with many children is, is highly esteemed, is well respected. And so changing those norms, uh, and, and maybe, uh, inspiring women to think about social status in a different way is what they're doing with the Population Media Center. And I, I like the gentle approach. I like the, uh, respectful and, uh, you know, kind of non-preachy, but rather entertaining approach that they take. And they have a lot of data to show that that's actually been a great way to get people to reconsider what they thought were very strict social norms in their culture and and that young people, both male and female, were beginning to rethink their, uh, you know, their generation's uh, viewpoints on social status and and family size. So I think that's kind of neat. I I encourage our listeners to check out the Population Media Center's website. It's It's a pretty cool approach. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Philip Cafaro and the new book, Life on the Brink, Environmentalists Confront Overpopulation. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're talking about human population issues, and this can be a very sensitive subject. And we're talking with Philip Cafaro. He's a professor of philosophy at the at Colorado State University. And if you're just joining us, we're talking about a brand new book that's out called Life on the Brink, Environmentalists Confront Overpopulation. And it's a compilation of essays from a wide variety of contributors. Some are academics, some are uh, environmental activists, uh, there's just a, a, a wide swath of contributors in the book. And I want to confront this next issue head on because this is what we may call the feather ruffling segment of the show. We're <laughs> going to be talking about morality issues as it relates to population and environmental degradation. And for some people, this can be very uncomfortable. I want to read a quote from the introduction of the book, Philip, and you did help to write that. And then I want you to explain it. Here's the quote. In various voices, the contributors affirm that humanity must find its appropriate limited niche within the larger living world rather than persist on our current biosphere-destroying path. Doing so, we argue, is a matter of basic moral decency. Now, Philip, you and I both know basic moral decency doesn't always mean the same thing to same to, you know to everybody. Um, so, I kind of want you to help us understand the moral authority on which your statement rests, and maybe we can all get on the same page. Talk to us about that. Sure. Well, I mean, the first thing to say about morality is uh, different people are going to ground that in very different things. Just just for a start, some of the people listening to this are going to be uh, religious believers. And so they might well ground their moral beliefs in the commands of God, let's say. Uh, other people are going to be secular, and, and they're going to have to look at different sorts of foundations for their moral beliefs. Uh, when we say it's a matter of basic moral decency to not uh, use up all the resources and all the habitat uh, for people and not crowd other species uh, off the earth, uh, what are we grounding that in? I, I think in the end it, it has to do with a sense of the history of life on Earth and how long life has been struggling and evolving 
for maybe 3 billion years, maybe 700 million years of complex multicellular life on Earth. And over time, you know, that's evolved into the tremendous diversity of life forms that we, we see today. Um, now, to, to then say, well, what we're going to be doing, what the human project is for the next couple centuries, is to take all of that and to turn it into a life support system for one species, Homo sapiens. Um, I think that's totalitarian. That's, that's fascistic. That's saying my tribe is most important and, and nothing else matters. Um, and that just seems wrong. Do you think that it's vital for people to adopt that same perspective in order to successfully address human population issues? Because I'm imagining that some people will out and out disagree with you on that. Well, I think that's true. And, and let's say you really don't have a problem with turning the whole world into just resource world for people. Mm-hmm. You might still have very good reasons to want to stabilize or reduce the human population. I mean, after all, uh, there's good evidence that we're running up against some limits concerning carrying capacity. And so uh, let's say you just care about people, but you care about all people, and especially poor people around the world. Um, there's pretty good evidence that stabilizing or reducing population can help uh, ratchet back the pressure and, and uh, preserve resources for people. Mm-hmm. So even if you don't buy the idea that other species deserve a place on, on Earth, you still, I think, have pretty good reasons for, for stabilizing the population. But, you know, I would assume that a lot of your listeners do think that it would be wrong to drive the last condors or the last eagles or the last sea otters or the last Perry's primroses extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you go back to 1970 and the Endangered Species Act in the United States, there, there was a moment where this country... Uh, said to itself, you know, when we're getting ready to extinguish the last of a species in order to build a dam or build a road or, or construct a subdivision, we've gone too far. That's, that's wrong. And we should step back at that point. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think a lot of your listeners probably would agree with that. A lot of our listeners probably would. I agree with you. I think that where some of the rub may come, and and I appreciate it from my own, you know, personal opinion. I appreciated the introduction of morality into the discussion at all, because sometimes um, environmental activists are shy to do that. But because there are a variety in this world, and it's a good thing, of moral authorities. You know, some of it is religion, and of course there are many religious, you know, moral uh, foundations. They're not all in agreement. That's why we have so many different religions. I think one of the places where I can foresee a rub for people who might be looking at the book and considering this moral obligation to preserve nature is when you juxtapose support for abortion rights, which is always a political third rail, and a a quote that came from one of the segments that you um, helped to co-author, when you say that non-human species have a moral right to continue uh, in existence free from untimely anthropogenic extinction. And some people will say, well, abortion is anthropogenic extinction of a human fetus. So how do those positions jibe? Well, uh, it's just a fact that, that, uh, 
in societies that uh, preserve the right to, to abortion, um, that's been a, a fundamental part of many societies around the world stabilizing their populations or reducing growth to a very small rate. Now, uh, it's true that there are lots of people out there who are pro-life, and they, they feel that abortion is simply wrong. Uh, I don't think, and, and I've talked to a lot of students about this over the years, because I, I teach classes in ethics every year, and, and we talk about abortion issues. Uh, those students don't seem to typically have thought through the question, well, look, if we're, if we're not going to allow people to have abortions, um, What's that going to do to the human population down down the line? Uh, it makes it much harder to stabilize the population. And so I, I would argue that a uh, neglected argument for the pro-choice side is the argument that it's part of stabilizing or reducing the human population. Well, on that same vein then, would universal health care coverage be in alignment or contrary to what you would consider sound population policy. If we're going to thin the herd on the front end with abortion, should we uh, neglect to care for the older members of the herd? No, I don't, I don't think we should do that because, um, number one, it won't work. Uh, it turns out that if, if you uh, leave people uncertain about things. They tend to have more kids rather than fewer. But I also think it would just be, uh, you know, it just would lead to tremendous uh, harms and suffering for people. And the good news is we can stabilize our population without that kind of harm and suffering. Uh, we should give universal health care, provide universal health care to people, and we should also provide uh, for the freedom to choose whether or not to have children. Right. And I think for some folks, you know, they would look at a wide swath of other options besides abortion <laughs> for that. And so, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of other ways if we're talking about ensuring no human suffering, eh, then we've got to look at what human suffering might be involved in abortion as well. Um, and you make a very bold statement that, that, you know, may be difficult for some people to on both sides of the political aisle to swallow in in a part of the book, and it's regarding American immigration. Um, you say Americans must choose between sustainability and continued population growth. We cannot have both. I'd love for you to explain your rationale for that statement to our listeners. Sure, and uh, I'll explain how it relates to, to immigration. Um, if you look at things like increased uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the United States over the past two and a half decades, uh, four-fifths of that has come from population growth, not from an increase in per capita use of energy. Uh, and if, if you go down the line, an awful lot of the, the growth in environmental impact in the United States comes from population growth. Now, it turns out in the U.S. that American citizens are having uh, actually a a little bit fewer children than are needed to, to um, stabilize our population. So uh, population growth, continued population growth in the U.S. is coming from our relatively high levels of immigration. Uh, just to throw out a few figures, um, uh, some projections that, that I've done recently, uh, at zero annual immigration, 
the U.S. population would grow from 315 million to 343 million by 2100. That's a relatively small growth. Mm -hmm. At our current rate of about one and a quarter million annual immigration, we'll instead grow to 524 million. That's over 200 million more Americans than we have today. Wow. And, and that is just a huge increase. So when you talk about immigration policy, uh, you're talking about the difference between stabilizing or greatly ratcheting up the U.S. population. Well, you know what's interesting about that, too? I mean, and this is a little bit off of what the book is talking about, but certainly about things that we've talked about on Go Green Radio. We are seeing our country enter a situation where our our water and energy infrastructure is aging out and we're looking at you know a, a federal budget and a lot of state budgets that are kind of hopeless in terms of even repairing our infrastructure let alone updating it and that infrastructure was put in for a, a US population significantly lower than what we currently have I haven't heard a single politician talk about planning for infrastructure to deliver things like clean water and energy to a population as large as what you mentioned it would be in the next few decades if we continue on the immigration policy that we currently have. And that is something that really is kind of, uh, at a, at a minimum, thought-provoking. Um, well, I've got to hand it to you, Philip. I mean, you you have equally and in a very bipartisan measure probably <laughs> ticked off people on the left, the right, and right up the middle. But it's it's okay because you know those are the kind of provocative discussions that get us thinking a little bit harder about uh, the status quo. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Philip Cafaro, uh, one of the co-authors of Life on the Brink, environmentalist confront. Overpopulation. Don't go away. More Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We're covering a super sensitive topic. This is, you know, not an easy topic to discuss. We talk about population issues and you can't separate a discussion on human population without thinking about babies and we love families and it's it's a hard conversation to have, but nonetheless a necessary conversation to have if we're going to be talking about making sure that we can meet the needs of future generations. And we're joined today, in case you're just joining us, uh, by Philip Cafaro, a professor of philosophy at Colorado State University, and we're talking about the new book, Life on the Brink, Environmentalists Confront Overpopulation. And before we went to break, we were talking about the impact that our U.S. Um, immigration policy has on uh, some of our infrastructure, our environmental quality. Uh, what do you think the U.S. should be doing to deal with immigration? What are your domestic policy recommendations, Philip? Well, my main recommendation would be to reduce uh, total immigration levels. Uh, currently, we're bringing in about 1.2 uh, million immigrants annually into the United States, and that's the main driver of population growth. Uh, currently, the U.S. is growing at a, right around 1% a year, about 3 million people per year. So uh, in order to stabilize our population, we should be reducing immigration. Um, and it's very interesting, you know, when, when I talk to, to politicians about this, uh, to talk to politicians with very strong environmental records in a whole bunch of specific issues and then and then you ask them about population growth and uh they don't really see a connection between that and and protecting the environment but i would argue that if you're just working on all the symptoms and you're just funneling ever more people into the system you're probably doing more harm than good well and i i wonder um it, what can be done to help uh, people see that connection i think you know on both sides of the aisle there's a strong desire to open the doors in a legal manner for people to come to the United States, fulfill their dreams, um, and and enjoy what we enjoy. How do you think that uh, that will change? Well, you know, that's really the hardest part of this for me personally. Uh, I had grandparents who came here from, from other countries, uh, and there's something that resonates with me and I, I think most Americans about the immigrant story, coming to a new country, mm-hmm. making a better, better life for you and your, your uh, descendants. Um, but again, the question is, and, and I wouldn't want to stop that altogether, but the question is, can we continue to have such huge numbers of people coming into the U.S. every year? I would argue that... that um, there's good evidence environmentally and, and also economically that it's just not working anymore. We've had uh, stagnating wages for middle class and working class Americans for 30 years. We have an official unemployment rate of 8% in this country, and it's, it's actually much higher. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we've come to the end of a period of, of um, very high immigration, and for, for various reasons, it just doesn't make sense to keep it at that level anymore. Well, probably the the folks who would be most likely to either put some pressure on or help to educate um, public policymakers on this issue would be environmental activist groups. I mean, you think about groups like the Sierra Club and what have you, but the book makes some pretty candid remarks about 
why some mainstream environmental groups haven't made population uh, issues a central priority. According to the contributors in the book, what are some of those reasons that these groups haven't focused on population reduction? Well, uh, the main reason is that if you go back to 1970 and the first Earth Day, uh, environmentalists talked about uh, population issues all the time, and they talked about the need for um, for uh, U.S. population stabilization, not just population stabilization around the world. But back in 1970, our population was mostly growing because of relatively high fertility rates mm-hmm. uh, among our own citizens. Well, over the next couple decades, fertility rates came down, but immigration went way up. And so once immigration became the main driver of population growth, uh, American environmentalists just were no longer comfortable talking about population growth. And so um, I think, and Dave Foreman, one of the contributors to the book, talks about this. So does, so does Leon Kalankowitz. So really, it just became too racially charged to to un-PC to talk about immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in order to deal with that, American environmentalists just sort of said, you know what, we're not going to talk about American population growth at all. Hmm. You mean they can't get together with Pat Buchanan and shut the doors? <laughs> well, you're right. <laughs> They're not they, willing they to align with the hard right on uh, immigration issues? <laughs> and, but, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, that's one of the things I've heard when I've talked to politicians on the left about this. They say things like, you know, so-and-so over there across the aisle, he's for reducing immigration, and he's terrible. I, I can't agree with him. Uh well, you know, there's another way to look at that, and, and that's to say, hey, isn't it great that some conservatives actually support us on an environmental issue? Maybe we should build on that instead of uh, dismissing it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's a common problem across the board on issue after issue. Instead of putting America first, um, our elected leaders, you know, sometimes put the party first and uh, and and. That's just not helping us on a number of different issues, I think. Um, we have just a few few seconds left. Is there anything else you'd like for our listeners to know about the book or about this issue before we have to say au revoir? Well, I think the main thing I'd like the, the listeners to realize is that um, these are difficult issues, and whether you agree or not with everything that, that we've said today, um, they're well worth exploring. Uh, I think a strong American environmentalism is going to have to grapple seriously with limits, whether those are limits to population or limits to economic growth. So I'd encourage environmentally concerned listeners to to help explore that. Read mm-hmm. this book, debate the issues with your friends. Uh, I'd also like to point out that for those of you um, who are interested specifically in American population issues, uh, there's a, a website that's involved with developing an environmental impact statement on U.S. immigration policy. It's www.immigrationeis.org. So okay. uh, that's well worth checking out. Thanks so much, Philip. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to our listeners for joining us. Uh, very interesting, not easy, not comfortable, but important topic to think about and discuss. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.